Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Uh, that we'll continue actually after Advent. We'll continue it in, um, in January. Um, basically looking at the idea of unity and what we as Christians are oriented around. It's not so much teaching on the concept of unity itself, but it's looking at the teaching of Paul and uh, the core of Christian theology and sort of saying to ourselves, what is it that's central uh, to what we believe that brings us together, that outweighs uh, those things that you are seeing on social media that we are fighting about. Um, just to help us understand that, imagine for a second that you are going to a theater, and it's uh, the IMAX theater, it's the massive screen, it's in ultra-high definition, and presented on it are the glories and beauty of Jesus and all that he is and all that he's done. And we're sitting there in front of that massive screen, the beauty of Jesus in front of us. And we're on Facebook texting our friends and messaging each other about political issues. We're missing something big and beautiful and we want to emphasize uh, the core of the faith and what we believe. Uh, Paul did it. Um, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, um, he said, Be eager to maintain unity in the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he gives just this simple little creed, uh, an early expression of the Christian creed. He says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is in all, or sorry, who is over all, through all. In all. And so we're looking at those seven ones in that beautiful little creed of Paul's. And we're looking today at the idea of one faith. What does it mean that we share one faith together? What does it mean that we have one thing in which we put our trust? What does it mean that we have one thing as people that we can truly lean on when we look towards our hope, when we look towards our redemption? And so our text today, and this is probably the most uh, rich little four verses in the scriptures in terms of unpacking what it means to really lean on Jesus. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. I'm just going to read that for us. Maybe I'll pray first, and then, uh, and then we'll just dig into it. Father, thank you so much for your scripture. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much uh, that we have this incredible uh, book written by you to inform our lives and not only inform our lives and increase the, the, the knowledge that we have of you, but to actually transform us. And we just ask that as we look at this, uh, you will transform us today. As we look at what it means to be a people of one faith in you, would you let us actually more than understand it, lean on it, and be people who live it, and be people who trust it. Transform us today, we pray, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, let's read Romans three twenty-three to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, I'll explain that in a moment, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we're united as people who are sinners. We're united in a faith uh, that leaves us completely dependent on God for our salvation. Completely dependent on his actions. Completely dependent on his power. Completely dependent on his works. And this uh, sets us free in two incredibly powerful ways. Uh, First off, uh, we as people tend to look at life and tend to look at this idea that we're sinners and say, I would rather not admit that. I would like to be able to say to my friends, to my family, to the people around me, and to God, that there is something inherent within me, there is something about me that is so good and so pure and so right and so righteous that I can be loved and accepted purely on the basis of who I am. And there is something of the image of God in us that is beautiful that is lovely. But what the scripture tells us is that that identity, those identity pieces that we uphold uh, to proclaim our own beauty are all marred and all broken by sin. That's something we share. And not only that we can't pay, we can't uh, create an identity for ourselves that is perfect enough, we can't pay for the things that we have done out of the brokenness of our humanity. We can't pay for the sins that we've done. We can't pay for the things that we've done to hurt and break others. Um, we are sinful people. And any actions that we have to try to put forward our identity and to redeem ourselves fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Anna and Annis Nin was an American hedonist. Uh, she was born in 1903, died in uh, 1977. Uh, and she was a person who was raised Roman Catholic. Uh, she was a prolific author. And her MO in life was to take uh, the things that the church had told her was evil and live them as though they were good. Live them proclaiming uh, those things that she, uh, I think, probably knew deep down in her heart were evil and proclaim them as a positive part of her identity. As an adult, she was in an incestuous relationship with her grandfather. Uh, she was known for pushing sexual boundaries. She was married to a man named Guthier. And on a business trip, she just happened to decide to marry another man named Rupert Pohl. So she was a polygamist. Uh, she became one of the first female writers of erotica in America, and there are more wicked deeds uh, that I could share with you that cannot be shared in a place where the junior high are present. She did everything to live a life that is opposite of her Christian upbringing and to try to put forward for herself an identity that she believed could be accepted, that she believed everyone should accept, that she believed uh, was good. And after her death, her journal was published and we were able to get a glimpse underneath that life of confident living and confidently putting forth an identity contrary to God, putting forth a hedonistic lifestyle. And this is the most notable quote from her, from her life. 
This is what we actually remember of her. In a dark moment before she died, she simply said this. She said, guilt is the only burden that human beings cannot bear for themselves. In the end of her life, she knew that there was something inside of her, that there was a debt that needed to be paid, that there was a burden that she carried inside of herself, that no amount of proclaiming her own righteousness would be able to deal with. Unless you think I'm just talking about those evil people out in the world, we as Christians uh, very often take on things as part of our identity in order to build ourselves up, in order to reduce our reliance on Jesus for affirmation and for love. We forget our dependence on him and we sometimes construct identities ourselves to try to hide our sinfulness. We get caught in trying to do all kinds of things to earn God's approval, all kinds of things uh, to make things right. So here's the question. Are you able to admit very simply that you are a sinner? That you have fallen short of the glory of God. That language, fallen short, means not have enough. You just don't have enough of the glory of God. You have just missed the mark in terms of living out the glory of God. Are there ways in which you um, take sin that's inside yourself and brokenness is inside yourself and problems that you wrestle with and say, oh, that's just because people don't understand who I really am? Is it somehow maybe that your efforts in life just aren't recognized? Maybe all that you've done, people haven't given you the, the kudos you need. They haven't recognized the goodness that's in you. Is there any chance that your effort to distinguish yourself and to achieve is actually based on an insecurity by which you're trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and redeem yourself and redeem your own mistakes and pay without asking Jesus to pay for you? Here's what I think we're just going to learn today from this text. We're going to learn that it's really true that the truer and more honest recognition that we have that we are sinners will actually produce in us the greater sense of affirmation and acceptance and joy coming from Christ. The truer recognition that we're sinners, the greater affirmation and joy that we'll understand. And secondly... Um, the recognition that you're helpless to redeem yourself, you're helpless to pay for all of your stuff, um, and that forgiveness is received only through faith will actually set you free to do more works and more good things with more joy and more freedom and more peace without all the stress and anxiety of trying to do a life of pain. So here is the first idea. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is not something we like, but we'll make a case for it just to make sure we understand it. Uh, the scriptures, for one, are very clear. In Romans 5, uh, 12, it says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 7:18 For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for I have a desire to do what is right but no ability to carry it out. 
Uh, John believed this. First uh, John one eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. David knew this in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm fifty one. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Jeremiah knew this. The prophet. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's a cheery portrait of humanity for us. I hope you're feeling all refreshed and affirmed and full of joy today. Um, but the reality is that human history, it bears this out when we see the swath of destruction that is left behind us, the swath of waste, the swath of damage in the world because of our actions. Humans have not uh, produced goodness in the world that God has created. Uh, your experience with others bears this out. Even if you think you're perfect, I'm pretty sure not a single one of you has met another human being that you can look at and say, yeah, that person's pretty well sinless. That person's pretty well got it figured out. Did anybody notice problems with each other? Right? We're not supposed to, but reality, we kind of do. Right? We haven't met any other perfect person. And obviously, your own self-examination if we're honest, we'll bring you to a place of saying, I've done things, I've said things, I've thought things that have torn other humans down. I've thought things that have offended the beauty and glory of Jesus. If we're honest with ourselves, that's our reality. And the problem with our cultures in realms of philosophy and psychology, we're doing absolutely everything we can to take those realities, the reality of sin, the reality of the guilt we feel, and to push it away and say, oh no, that's just an external construct. That's just something uh, that you got from growing up in church. That's just something you got from our old culture, our old society, the old way it was. Uh, you don't have to believe that stuff anymore. You can believe that within yourself, you're a luminous being. You're perfect and beautiful and whole. And all of your weird and quirky and unique desires for things that you know are evil and wicked, those are just a part of who you are. That's just your genetic makeup. That's just how you're made. And we should celebrate everything about how we're made. And we know that's just not true. If we insist that we are born perfect and sinless, and that we can approach God on our own merit, we're ultimately living a lie. Uh, the reality is, is that to construct an identity that sort of counters that natural, honest sense of brokenness and guilt that we feel in ourselves, it, it, it's no more possible for us to do that than it is for us to conceive of ourselves. It's no more possible to construct an, an, an identity for yourself than it is to give birth to yourself. You can't give birth to yourself, your physical self, your physical body, and you can't by yourself give birth to your spiritual self, your emotional self, your inner self, your soul. You cannot give birth to yourself. You cannot give birth to an identity. An identity, personhood, your existence is bestowed as your body is bestowed. We can work with the Holy Spirit to grow more and more to reflect the image of Christ in us. But we can't create for ourselves a separate identity that we can rubber stamp and say, yep, I'm okay. There's a reality that we need to deal with. 
We simply don't have the strength to do that. And the, and the work and the effort that we're seeing in our culture to create those identities and to hold on to them and to protect them and to, to say that they're okay and to uphold that even though inside of ourselves we know they're not true, it's producing an incredible amount of strain, an incredible amount of anxiety, an incredible amount of fear, an incredible disconnect inside of us as humans because we simply don't have the strength to hold up those identities. There's this great old Ben Stiller movie uh, called Mystery Man. I don't know if any, have anybody seen that? It's pretty obscure, okay, so I'm gonna have to tell you about it. Uh, but the movie Mystery Man, uh, Ben Stiller and, and his band of superheroes uh, are out there, they're trying to fight crime, they're trying to save the world, but they all have these uh, incredibly uh, weird and obscure identities as superheroes by which they do this. Ben Stiller is, I forget what his name is, but he's called he's like Raging Fury, and his superpower is that he gets angry. That's his identity. Uh, one, William H. Macy plays a character called the Shoveler. That's his, his superpower, he, he, car- he carries a shovel. Um, but one of the funniest one is the Invisible Boy. And let me just read you a little dialogue here. Um, they're coming to, to meet all these other superheroes and, and try to build their team. Uh, the Invisible Boy is the guy sort of a second from your left. Um, says this, he says, so, so are you the invisible boy? They come in to meet him in his apartment. And he's like, wow, all my life I've been ignored by people. Finally, after years of being overlooked, I've found the power to disappear. So, so let me get this straight. You do have the ability to become invisible? Yes. But, but you can't give a demonstration. N- no, I, I can only become invisible when no one's watching. <laughs> so, so you're only invisible to yourself? Uh, no, if I look at myself, I become visible again. <laughs> so you only become visible when nobody is wa- invisible when nobody's watching. Yes. Uh, do forgive my incredulity, uh, but how can you be certain you have achieved uh, transparency? Well, when you go invisible, you just feel it. And we live this level of self-deception all the time. Oh yeah, I've got it together. I've got it all right. I I, I just feel it. And the reality is, like the invisible boy, don't actually feel it. And we don't actually live it. Our superhero identities that we construct from ourselves, for ourselves, are always proven hollow. Uh, So the question is... um, Can you think of areas in your life that reflect an attempt to create an identity for yourself that distracts from the reality of the brokenness and sin that you carry inside yourself? Whether you're a non-Christian or you're a Christian, because we do this as Christians all the time. We create identities, we create personas, uh, we uh, take uh, our hobbies as identity, we take our employment as identity, uh, we take our spiritual gifts as our identity, we take all of these things and we put them forward as the reality of who we are when inside there is somebody who is desperately in need of grace. Inside there is someone who is desperately in need of the love and affection and affirmation that comes as a free gift from our Savior.
If we look at our brokenness and we look at our sin, it's not necessary for us to hide it from God. And it's not necessary for us to hide it from each other. It's just not necessary. Uh, we might need that to actually feel affirmation among the humans, but the affirmation of the humans isn't the real affirmation that we need. We need love. Now this love and this affection of God isn't just some mushy thing. It isn't just some feeling that God has, though I believe he does have that for us. He has this incredible affection uh, for us, for those he's created. But his love is more than that. His love deals with the reality, the actual cost of our sin. It deals with the actual cost of our actions that hurt and break and wound others. Uh, looking back at our text, um, it says this. It says uh, this, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And when we take apart this text, and we're going to do so in a, in a few seconds, what we're going to see is that what God has done for us is that he has done a transaction that actually balances out the cost of our sin, that actually pays for the magnitude of the brokenness that we carry and the wounds that we've caused uh, in one another. The gift we receive from Christ is a gift of redemption. And that, and that word redemption uh, doesn't mean, like when we think of, of a person being redeemed, we think a person has been fixed, a person has kind of been improved, a, kind of, a person has been kind of uh, worked on, a person is like an old car that, uh, you know, is sort of sitting in someone's uh, backyard rusting away and somebody has taken that old car and just sort of loved it and fixed it up. And, and God does that with us. He transforms us and he makes us new. That's a part of the ongoing process on the other side of uh, salvation. But the Greek word for redemption, that word apotruosos, uh, boy, apol, I had this so great when I was practicing. Apolutrosis means actually to ransom. It means to actually uh, pay. It means actually like a coupon um, that actually pays for your groceries. It's an actual, an image that is very, very tangible, that is quantifiable, that is, uh, in Greek language, numerical. It is uh, commercial. There is a way in which there is something about us that we have created a debt that only something tangible and something real can pay. It is a, a transaction to buy, used to buy back freedom that has been forfeited. It is used to buy back freedom that you have forfeited. It is used to take a person who's been in slavery to quantify the value of that person's work and labor and who they are, the debt that they owed, to pay the person who has owed that debt so that that person could be set free in that ancient concept of slavery. What we have done, what we have taken from others, maybe it's a lie that you've told, a simple thing, a simple lie that you've told to get someone to do something that they wouldn't otherwise have chosen to do, and the lie that you've told has caused them to give you a piece of their life 
that wasn't earned on the basis of your merit. Maybe a little white lie. You've taken life from a person with that lie. And there are hundreds of other ways in which we take life uh, from people with our lies, with our greed, with our selfishness. And these ways of living, these ways of taking, and these ways of taking from God incur a real debt. And the reality is that in breaking God's law and incurring that debt, it becomes evident to us and it becomes evident to those we've hurt that very often there's nothing that you or I can do to give back that life that we've taken. A person can't be unmurdered. A person's heart can't be unstolen. A person's uh, can't be unlied to. Trust can't be unbroken in that initial breaking of trust. You can repair it over time, but you can't fix and go back in time and undo that original incident. There are debts that we as humans simply can't pay. And not only do we owe a ransom, not only do we owe a debt for the things that we have done, we incur an emotional response. We create an emotional response in the person we've hurt. What, what do you feel when something's been taken from you? You feel anger. You feel hurt. You feel betrayal. And the reality is, is that we create that sense of hurt, that sense of betrayal in God as well. And that's what it means when he says that he, he is, puts Jesus forward as a propitiation, a hilasterion, a wrath-appeasing sacrifice, because our actions, our wicked actions, produce an emotional response in others. They produce a wrath in God. And if you think it's not fair uh, to think of God as an angry God who responds in anger, then think about when something wicked has been done to you. You actually want a God who hurts when you're hurt. You actually want a God who hurts for the woman who's been raped. You actually want a God who is angry about a life that is taken in murder. You want a God that is willing to connect emotionally with the subjects that he loves. He is not distant. He is not a computer. He is not some sort of God who uh, just sort of runs the universe from his armchair a long way away. He is a God who has entered into your life and entered into my life in such a way that when we hurt, when we are wounded, he is hurt. When we are broken, he is broken. And so our actions that steal life from others incur the wrath of God. And the scripture is clear on this as well. That Greek word, uh, hilasterion, we see there, um, we see it reflected uh, in the Old Testament, uh, in, in the Septuagint, and where it corresponds to that wrath-appeasing sacrifice is a sacrifice in the ancient temple 
um, where sacrifices were always going on. People were always bringing uh, bulls and calves and goats and sheep and birds in to somehow pay back for their sin, to somehow do that repayment bit that we talked about earlier, to somehow ransom themselves, to somehow get themselves out. But then there was a second layer of sacrifice that could only be done by the high priest in that ancient temple, and it could only be done in the Holy of Holies. It was a sacrifice of propitiation. And what the high priest would do is they would take the blood of those sacrifices one time a year and he would go through the the curtains of the temple and he would go inside to the most intimate place of the presence of God. He would go before what is called the mercy seat, uh, which we know as the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God is enthroned, the place where God is there in his most holiness, the place where God is there in a way that is most personal, the place of greatest intimacy, the place of God's heart. And there would sprinkle uh, the blood from the sacrifice. To reach God with the sacrifice closest to his heart in the most intimate way that his wrath would be appeased in a place of intimacy and rebuilt friendship and rebuilt love. And that word uh, hysterion that we see, uh, hilasterion, is actually uh, the word that later in Latin and then later in English uh, became the word hilarity. And it, what it refers to is it refers to a transition in your emotional state from wherever you are to a place of cheer. To a place of cheer. And God, by his power, has created a way that sacrifice is made through Jesus Christ that takes the anger and wrath that we deserve, uh, pays for the price, the price of our sins, and brings God to a place. Pays so thoroughly that it brings God to a place of cheer and delight when he sees you and when he looks at you because of what Jesus Christ has done. God, the offended one, the wrathful one, has made sacrifice to appease that wrath. And the sacrifice that he made to appease that wrath was the sacrifice of himself, his son Jesus, on the cross. And he became his own high priest. And he came into the temple with the sacrifice that is himself. And he sprinkled his own blood on the altar and appeased his wrath at you by the death of him. There is nothing, there is nothing that you or I can do that is a part of that process. He has thoroughly accomplished redemption from our sin and the appeasement of his wrath completely and wholly within himself. And that's why it says we receive this by faith. That's all we have to offer. We receive it by faith. We receive it as a humble 
humble people, we receive it as a gift. We are justified by nothing that we have done, only by faith. And that dependence on the God who is the giver, the God who is the lover, the God who looked at you while you were still a sinner and died for you. That is what we receive by faith. So here's the question. I wonder if you see in your life ways in which you're trying to accomplish your own redemption, to appease wrath, to turn God's up, frown upside down all by yourself. So, that's, that's what we're trying to do so much of the time, isn't it? We imagine this angry, wrathful God, and he has every right to be angry and wrathful. And we're trying to turn his frown upside down in our own strength, and we simply don't have the strength or the power to do it. We simply don't have it. He has done it for us. He has done it for us. And you can see your heavenly father smiling over you. Redemption and wrath satisfied within himself. Because he loves you that much. So stop trying to earn redemption for yourself. How much time do you spend uh, working at your job trying to build a company uh, that can maybe give more so that you can somehow pay more for your own stuff? How often do we uh, take uh, this, have this inner thing in us that is trying to redeem, that is trying to pay, and we just pour more and more and more and more hours into vocation? more and more hours into even seemingly good things like social justice and caring for the poor, these wonderful things. How much time do we spend pouring into those things? Not out of faith, not out of a sense of an abundance of God's love, but because deep down we don't actually believe in the gift that he's offered us. I believe it's possible that coming to a better understanding what it means to accept his redemption and his gift to set us free will ultimately set us free to live a life of service and of worship that is far more than we could have ever lived out of trying to redeem ourselves. We see this in, in Paul's life. It's Paul just describing his journey. His life free from striving. His life of grace. His life of serving God with joy. This is what he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 to 25. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. 
But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I am between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. And in verse 25, knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so that I continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. That is a person who is living a life with the purpose of glorifying Christ, with the purpose of redeeming himself way back in his rearview mirror. Leave behind your efforts to redeem yourself. Leave behind our efforts to create identity for ourselves and find yourself free to live a life of sharing Jesus' story, of proclaiming Jesus' glory, of inviting people into this incredible journey of faith that he has invited us to. We have to leave it. We have to depend on him. We have to lean on faith. Only he can make us new. Only he can save us. Only he can redeem us. So just this final question. Are you, and I can't see the clock to know whether to call the worship team back. (laughs) Um, Are you trusting Jesus for your salvation? Are you trusting Jesus for your salvation? Maybe you're here and you're, you're not a believer. You've, you've never said, oh man, I, I admit that I need this. If you've never said that, you, you need to just come before Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I need you. I've been trying to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I've been trying to save myself. I've been trying to redeem myself. I've been trying to create an identity for myself and it hasn't worked. I know inside myself that it doesn't work. I desperately need the love and affirmation that comes as a gift from you. And if that's you today and you've never accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I beg you to offer him your life today. I beg you to surrender. I beg you to give up. I beg you to trust him. And if you're a Christian who's still been living a life that's not a life of faith, a life of self-redemption, a life of creating wealth and persona and success to somehow earn your way back to God. Give it up and become a person who lives to glorify your Father in heaven. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovchurch.ca.